white lady, a grey man, a bathing monk and a twitching eye. Welcome to episode 12 of a Northern Counties Paranormal Podcast, hosted by Within the Boggart Wood. Hello and welcome to episode 12. I'd like to start the episode with a massive thanks to a new Patreon supporter, Sophie LT. Thanks for your support, Sophie. It does mean a lot, and I look forward to chatting with you on the Patreon page. Secondly, I'd also like to say a massive thanks to everyone listening to the podcast. This last week, we topped the first download milestone for the podcast, hitting 1,000 downloads. I'm just waiting for the Podbean service to catch up, and once they do, I'll post the 1K badge on the website and social media. And thirdly, at the time of this episode being originally broadcast, I'm upgrading the main Within the Boggartwood website with a more folklore and storytelling theme. Please have a look, take to social media and let me know what you think. In today's first story, we look at the tale of the White Lady of Blenkinsop Castle. Blenkinsop Castle, now the Blenkinsop Castle Country Inn, is a Grade 2 listed building and scheduled monument. Situated just off the A69, 16 miles from both Carlisle to the west and Hexham to the east, the castle lies less than a mile south of Hadrian's Wall. The core of the castle is thought to be early 14th century in date, constructed by Thomas de Blenkinsop. The castle received a licence to crenellate in 1340, and remnants of its structure can be seen to be Roman stonework, presumably taken from the nearby Hadrian's Wall or Magna Roman Fort. By 1541 the castle had fallen into decay, the results of two centuries of border warfare, and the Blenkinsops had moved their household to the nearby Bellister Castle. By 1801, a poor house had been constructed within the ruins of the castle, and during the early years of the 19th century, the Blenkinsop Coulsons opened nearby collieries. In 1832-1833, the colliery agent constructed a new house at the castle, incorporating elements of the medieval structure. It was then rebuilt again and enlarged between 1877 and 1880 for William Blenkinsop Coulson. It was then purchased by Edward Joycey in 1885, when it was converted into a hotel before being gutted by fire in 1854. Due to the instability of the ruins, sections were demolished in the 1960s and 1980s. The castle was then restored in part and became a family home. It was then put up for sale in 2015 and the new owners converted the castle into the country hotel. The legend of the White Lady is said to originate with Sir Brian de Blenkinsop, who said in legend that he would only marry if he could find an extremely rich wife, i.e. one with a dowry of more gold than the ten of his men could carry. According to some versions of the tale, Sir Brian fought in Agincourt in 1415, and in other versions in the Crusades. As far as I can find looking through all the folklore, there seems to be actually four versions of how the story unfolded. In the first, eventually Brian found a wife with a dowry of gold that took twelve of his men to carry, but Sir Brian was an evil man and treated his new bride with such cruelty that she fled the castle with a small handful of servants. But before she did so, she hid her wealth. It was then said that Sir Brian spent his remaining years searching the castle and its grounds for her hoard, but never found it, and the apparition of his bride is said to haunt the castle ruins, gliding in the dark as the White Lady of Blenkinsop. In the second version, after marrying his new rich bride, one night Brian disappeared without a trace and his wife, 
who was filled with grief, set about searching for him. Eventually she left the castle with a small group and they too disappeared. The white lady is said to be the shade of his distraught wife, doomed to wander the castle at night until someone finds her hoard of gold. In the third version, once wed to his new rich wife, Sir Brian shut himself away in the castle and became a miser, causing his new beautiful wife much grief. In order to attempt to save him from his greed, she gathered up all her gold dowry and had it buried in a chest somewhere in the castle grounds, in a spot known only to herself and her servants, and the white lady said to haunt the grounds, forever protecting people from finding the gold, or in another version, trying to help people find the gold so that she can be free. The fourth version of the tale is that Sir Brian fought in the Crusades and brought more than he bargained for back from the Holy Land, in the form of his wife. His wife returned with him, with her servants carrying the chests of gold, but his wife was actually a demon or jinn sent to punish him for his greed, and both husband and wife were said to disappear mysteriously, leaving the gold hoard hidden forever. Warren and Wells, in the BBC North book Ghost of the North, tell the tale that during the 19th century before the castle was rebuilt, the estate gardeners moved into the remnants of the castle, and one evening they were woken to the screams from their child, who had dreamt of a lady in white who wanted him to go with her to find hidden treasure. Thinking it simply a nightmare, they waited until he had the same visitation three more times before moving to a different room, which seemed to ease his troubles. Warren and Wells also cite the story told them by Michael Simpson, the then owner of the castle at the time they were searching their book in 1995. Apparently one night he'd been lying in bed and heard some odd footsteps in the corridor outside his room. The footsteps stopped at his door, and he saw the door handle turn, but then it stopped, and he said that the bedroom took on an odd atmosphere before the footsteps then retreated down the corridor again. Michael also told the authors that apparently a concealed entrance had been found in the east wall of the castle when it was being renovated in the 1880s. The workmen opened the entrance, and one of their number entered, holding a canary in a cage for fear of coal gas. He was gone for some minutes, then returned as his canary had died, but described a long corridor, stone steps and a door off its hinges. He was about to go further when his canary had succumbed to the cold gas, permeating the corridors, and he beat a hasty retreat. Two more attempts were made, but the cold gas refused to shift, and eventually the entrance was simply blocked up again for safety. Another version of this story was told in John Ingram's 1897 book, The Haunted Houses and Family Traditions of Great Britain. The account reads... The belief that treasure lies buried in Blenkinsop Castle was not a little strengthened some years ago by the arrival of a strange lady in the neighbouring village. She, it would appear, had dreamt that a large chest of gold lay buried in the castle vaults. Although she had never seen it before, she instantly recognised the castle as the same she had seen in her dream. She stayed several weeks awaiting the return of the owner of the property to ask leave to search. She had, meanwhile, made the hostess of the inn her confidant, with strict injunctions not to divulge it to anyone. The landlady, unable to preserve so interesting a secret, appears to have told it to every person in the village, but accompanied with a caution similar to what she received herself. Whether from the circumstances having acquired such publicity, or for some reasons unknown to our informant, cannot be said, but at any rate the unknown lady suddenly departed, without, of course, having accomplished the purpose of her pilgrimage to Blenkinsop. Up till 1820, some poor families continued to occupy a few of the more habitable rooms of the old castle, but even these are now ruinous and deserted. A few years ago, the occupier of the neighbouring farm gave orders for the vaults underneath the keep to be cleared out, for the purpose of wintering cattle therein. On removing the rubbish, a small doorway, level with the bottom of the keep, was discovered. 
On clearing out the entrance, the workmen were surprised by the appearance of a large swarm of meat flies, and the place itself smelled damp and noisome. The news soon spread abroad that the entrance to the ladies' vault had been discovered, and people flocked in great numbers to see it. Of the whole number assembled, however, but one man was found willing to enter. He described the passage as narrow, and not sufficiently high to admit a man walking upright. He walked in a straightforward direction for a few yards, then descended a flight of steps, after which he again proceeded in a straightforward course until he came to a doorway. The door itself had fallen to pieces, the bolt was rusting in its fastening, and hinges clung to the post with shaky hold. At this juncture the passage took a sudden turn, and lengthened flight of precipitous steps presented themselves. Opening his lantern and turning the light, he peered down the stairs into a thick darkness, but encountering thick noxious vapours, his candle was extinguished, and he was obliged to grope his way back to his companions. He made another attempt, but never descended the second flight of stairs, and so little curiosity had their employer about the matter, that he ordered it to be closed up, and the contents of the vault remained undiscovered to this day. When I saw the place, records Mr. Patson, sometime after this adventure, the hole had been partially opened by some boys, who were amusing themselves with tossing stones therein, and listened to the hollow echoes as they rolled in the depths of the mysterious cavern. Another legend suggests that this secret entrance was actually the entrance to an escape tunnel which would lead out of Blenkinsop and over to Thirlwall Castle, should the Blenkinsops ever need to escape. The Thirlwall Castle story is one that will be touched on in a later episode of the podcast. So the last sighting of the White Lady seems to have been written about in 1974 by the author Tegner, who claimed to have met a man on Grey Street in Newcastle while researching his book on ghosts, who had seen the White Lady, but had fled in fear at the sight. Looking into the newspaper archives, on the 26th of December 1931, the Derbyshire Times reported that in order to find the golden jewels hidden at Blenkinsop, the treasure hunter would have to look for the apparition of a white crow, which would hover over the treasure's burial spot, but only on a Christmas Eve. As well as the White Lady, Blenkinsop Castle also plays host to that of a black dog. On the 11th of March 1939, the Newcastle Chronicle reported that Associated with Blenkinsop Castle is a tradition that the death of its occupier is always heralded by the appearance twice of a huge black hound, which the second time glides through the chamber of death as the spirit of the dying master takes its departure. This tradition is not associated with the better known one of the White Lady of Blenkinsop mentioned in a recent issue of the Weekly Chronicle. Today's second story stays with the Blenkinsop family, but moves to Bellister Castle. Bellister Castle, now a private residence, is a Grade 1 listed building and a scheduled monument. The scheduled area comprises the remains of a hall house, mot and moat. The mot was a mound or hill on which a defensible structure was built, and in the case of Bellister is thought to date to the 11th or 12th century, with the ruined hall dating to the late 13th with 14th century additions. As noted in the previous story, the castle passed into the hands of the Blenkinsops in the 16th century, and records from 1561 label the site as a basil or fortified farmhouse. It was then likely the structure was rebuilt in 1669, as there is a date stone present, with that year inscribed in it. In the 19th century, a grand structure was built adjacent, which is now the private residence. Like Blenkinsop Castle, Bellister was said to be the home of a ghost. The last recorded sighting of the Grey Man of Bellister Castle was over 150 years ago, 
but before that time the castle grounds and the forest around were known to be well and truly haunted by the ghost, whose appearance it is said foretold death. The origins of this spectre are shrouded in folklore, but it seems that during the reign of Elizabeth I an old minstrel came to the castle looking for shelter and food, for which he was willing to pay in song and story. However, the young Baron of Bellister drank too much, and his wine-fuddled mind began to play tricks on him, rousing paranoia and suspicions that perhaps the old man was an agent of his enemies come to spy on him. Perhaps the minstrel suspected the Baron's intentions, or perhaps he noted the mood change. But after the castle settled down to sleep, he decided to chance his luck in the storm and headed out into the forest to find shelter. However, still fueled by alcohol and suspicion, the Baron sent for him, only to find he had fled. More convinced than ever his guest had been a spy, the Baron let loose his hunting dogs. They caught up with the old minstrel where he sheltered in the forest, and so the tale goes ripped him apart. The Baron lived to regret his deed when the ghost of the minstrel became his shadow, following him wherever he went, looming over him with a stench of death, his wounds livid on his ghostly skin. The strain of being constantly stalked by his victim finally became too much for the Baron, and he died an early death. The 17th of February 1900 edition of the Newcastle Chronicle tells a more detailed version. Most of our old border fortresses and fortalices, castles, towers, peels and bastle houses had the reputation of being haunted in the good old times. The old castle of Bellister, on the south bank of the Tyne, about a mile from Haltwhistle, is one of these haunted baronial buildings. It consists at present of a rude and crumbling mass of ruins which was overshadowed when Hodgson wrote, by an enormous sycamore. It seems to have been a huge irregular structure, occupying a high artificial mound and surrounded by a broad fosse. Hutchinson, who visited in 1776, speaks of it as a ragged and confused pile of mouldering walls without any ornament or beauty and rendered more gloomy by the branches of large oaks, which have surmounted the building and shaded the greater part of its remains. Down to Queen Elizabeth's time, it was the seat of the younger branch of the Blenkinsops of Blenkinsop Castle, entitled to the distinction of Baron by their courtesy, and it is presumable that it was during their ownership that the tragedy was enacted which converted it ever after into a haunted house. The tradition runs that many centuries ago, when the castle stood on its then impregnable strength and its lord was the proud owner of all the fertile fields round it, one stormy afternoon when the darkness was fast setting in, the porter at the gate was addressed by a wandering minstrel, an aged grey-haired man who sought shelter for the night. The Baron readily gave the poor wayfarer leave to stay, and moreover directed him to be brought into the hall where supper was being set out. After this meal had been dispatched and the tables cleared, there were flagons of nut-brown ale to be drained. The good minstrel was of course called upon to enliven this good cheer still further with a touch of his musical instrument and a specimen of his poetic powers. He did so and was rapturously applauded. These were the days when, whether in cot or castle, the time hung heavily on people's hands in the long four supper times in winter, and when there was nothing for it after supper till bed basest means to work woe to him and his. The longer he sat, the more he thought of it, the more strong and deeper suspicions grew. Every movement the minstrel made only served to confirm them, and the threadbare phrases of exaggerated laudation of which the Baron and his ancient and honourable house were made the subject, instead of gratifying his vanity, excited his contempt. Distrust was soon visible in his countenance, 
and the minstrel was among the first to mark it. After the usual signal for withdrawal had been given, and the company had retired, the Baron continued to pace the room, filled with perplexing anxieties. At length, having worked himself into a hot passion, he summoned his attendants and directed them to bring the harper to his presence. They went accordingly to the bedchamber which had been assigned to him for the night, but found that it was empty. By some means or other he had contrived to escape, though how he had managed to do so unobserved was a mystery. Either he had augured mischief to himself from the Baron's dark looks, or he was conscious that the guilty errand on which he had been sent was detected, and that he would suffer for it at any rate he had fled. The bloodhounds were ordered out, and instant pursuit after the fugitive commenced, headed by the Baron. The dogs soon got on the man's track, and had not far to run before they came up with him, hard by a clump of willow trees near the banks of the Tyne. They rushed upon him, seized him, and pulled him down, and here the foremost of the pursuing party could reach the spot they had torn him to pieces. Whether the Baron's suspicions had been well-founded, or whether they had been engendered solely by his own morbid imagination, no mortal could ever tell, but remorse for the barbarous outrage seized on its unhappy perpetrator, who never had a single day's peace of mind after that. Wherever he went, he was never alone. The grey-haired old minstrel, horrible in his disfigurement, was his close companion. His own shadow was much more fitful in its attendance on him, for it went and came with the light, but the wretch he had been the means of brutally murdering followed or preceded him everywhere, by night and by day, at home and abroad, and when it was pitch dark or when it was broad sunshine. The goblin, moreover, was most dreadful when it could not be seen, when its cold unnerving presence was only felt, when it stalked behind the baron's back, and whenever he turned, like a staggered bear to face it and brave it out, turned as he turned, and still behind, grinning as he shudderingly fancied with its ghastly white teeth. At length the baron slept with his fathers, and by and by his race became extinct. The castle and grounds passed into other hands, innocent of the minstrel's blood. Nevertheless, the goblin still haunted the place. Sometimes it made its appearance harmlessly to one or other of the inmates of the castle when going to or coming from the neighbouring ferry or ford. At other times it was seen stalking round the old building, with an aspect more terrible and threatening than usual, and then it always betokened impending misfortune or death to one of the family, in this resembling the Irish Banshee. Its last appearance on record was about the close of the last century, long after the castle had fallen into utter ruin. The Grey Man, as he was called, is said to have then appeared in the evening twilight to a youth who was on his way to a farmhouse near. The tale was told by the late Mr. William Pattinson of Sunderland in Richardson's The Local Historian's Table Book, where it may still be read by the curious in these matters. This episode's From the Archives comes from the Berwickshire News and General Advertiser, with an article dated Tuesday 6th of June 1905 and entitled Melrose Abbey's Lady Ghost. A romantic legend is narrated concerning the Abbey of Old Melrose. While bell, book and candle were still all-powerful in and around that ancient convent, a monk, it is said, formed an intimacy with one of the ladies of Bemberside, which was inconsistent with his vows as a celibate and his marriage to the church. The matter coming to the ears of his spiritual superiors, the lady mysteriously disappeared, and the monk was condemned in penance for his fault 
to bathe every day all the year round in a pool in the Tweed, below the promontory on which the abbey stood. This penance he religiously observed, even when in winter he had to break the ice for the purpose, keeping silence all the while as to the cause of his extraordinary punishment. But after his death, a fearful significance was given to these mysterious ablutions, for tradition says at midnight, when the moon looks fitfully through a driving storm rack, and the torrents descend from the hills, and the tweed chafes angrily between its banks, the white figure of a lady is seen to emerge with a wild shriek from the waters of the holy pool, which then divide, one huge wave going towards old Melrose, another towards Bremerside, between which, with a second piercing cry, the unhappy lady descends and passes out of sight. Today's superstition snippet comes from the Denham Tracts, a collection of folklore reprinted from the original tracts and pamphlets printed by Denham between 1846 and 1859. This particular superstition is called the Sign of Life. Professor Leboeur of the University of Durham College of Science, Newcastle, furnishes me with a somewhat singular superstition, which I have not seen noted elsewhere, called the Sign of Life. The expression is one, he writes, I have only met within the neighbourhood of Falstone, up North Tyne, where a peculiar tremulous involuntary twitching of the eye is said to be the sign of life, and if repeated a certain number of times, three times I think, in a month or year, I forget which, is supposed to portent great things, but what things, whether good or bad, I cannot remember. My chief informant with regard to this mysterious sign of life was Mrs. Robson, the postmistress of Falston a very mine of local knowledge. My wife informs me that in the south of England, Hampshire and Wiltshire, the same thing is called living blood. Thanks for listening to episode 12. If you'd like to know more about the Within the Boggartwood project and find links to written articles, Patreon or social media, please visit the main website at theboggartwood.uk. The link is also in the episode description. Until next time, Have a great week and stay safe.